This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 15 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. You are what you eat, but why? Part of the answer to that lies in the human gut microbiome. Our gastrointestinal tract contains literally trillions of bacteria and other microbes. All of these microbes and their DNA collectively make up the human gut microbiome. According to the NIH-funded Integrative Human Microbiome Project, the human microbiome is important for our health and for our behavior. It's involved in specific human diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and type 2 diabetes. But our understanding of how our bodies communicate with our gut microbiome is still limited. Today, I'm at Stanford University in Stanford, California, and I'm here with Dr. Ami Bhatt and Jessica Ribato. Ami is Professor of Medicine and Genetics at Stanford, and Jessica is a PhD student in Ami's lab. Ami and her team use genomic, molecular, and computational techniques to understand how we interact with our microbiome and how these interactions can impact human disease. Ami started our interview by explaining how the human microbiome is involved in maintaining human health. Um, we're surrounded by microorganisms in our environment, but of course we're also filled with microorganisms, predominantly in our gut, but also other interesting niches like our skin, etc. And so our laboratory is really interested in how these microbes interact with us and impact our health. Um, so we live obligately with probably trillions of microorganisms. Um, we know that animals, for example, that are reared without microorganisms have really compromised health in terms of compromised immunity, compromised metabolism, etc. Based on these experiments, we know that these microorganisms are critical for us maintaining a proper state of health. Um, many recent studies over the last 10 to 20 years have demonstrated that alterations in the composition of the microbiome are actually associated with poor outcomes in a variety of human diseases that range from allergy, asthma, all the way to cancer. Ami described the types of microbes typically found in our gut, including the famous E. coli bacteria. Some of our gut microbes are anaerobes, meaning that they can't grow in oxygen. Since these types of microbes are difficult, or even impossible, to grow in the laboratory, scientists have turned to metagenomic sequencing to help us understand which microbes are present in the gut. I think almost everybody who listens to this podcast has probably heard of Escherichia coli or E. coli. E. coli was originally isolated from gut or stool specimens, and E. coli is a member of the normal gut microbiome. But many people will be surprised to know that E. coli, despite the fact that it was one of the first microorganisms to be cultured from our stool, is actually not the most common microorganism. Most of the microorganisms that are within the gut are actually really difficult to culture in normal aerobic conditions. And so we're unable to culture them unless we look for them in a very specific way. And many of these normal microbes or bacteria that live within our guts, our commensals, are anaerobic, meaning that they can't grow in the presence of oxygen. Right. And so as we've developed newer methods to enumerate all the microorganisms that exist within the human, um, we've been able to identify evidence of these strict anaerobes. 
Um, knowing that they're there has now allowed us to develop methods to isolate and culture these organisms as well, so that we can study them not only in the human body, but also in vitro. Jessica is a talented PhD student who works in AMI's group. Jessica is a computational biologist, and she described what motivated her to study the human microbiome. She also discussed her greatest early challenge, identifying microbes by DNA sequence, given the relatively poor quality of microbial reference databases. So I'm a computational biologist, which means most of my day I am writing scripts to analyze the microbiome data that we get from sequencing. And this can be anywhere from trying to classify the organisms or the genes that we're sequencing through our technologies. Um, I first heard about the microbiome as a senior when I read about a study where they took stool from a fat mouse into a lean mouse and made that mouse fat also. And from that, I, was, I thought it was very interesting, but I didn't see myself kind of going down that way. And then as a first-year genetic student, I actually met Ami, and she was like, oh, I'm doing this field that you had read before, and I just thought I would try it out. And here I am, actually, four years later. So I had actually started in human genetics prior to coming into the microbiome field. And what I guess threw me off the most is that there weren't really great reference databases for a lot of the things we were sequencing. So I was used to always working with a database that I knew and that other people had created very well. And here it was like, oh, most of the things we sequenced, about 50% of the things we sequenced, we do not know what they belong to. That was my first challenge where I was like, what are we even working with here? <laughs> Ami and I discussed her team's interesting research on environmental factors that can affect our microbiome. Triclosan and triclocarban are antibacterial chemicals incorporated into many common products, where their antibacterial properties are seen as beneficial. She and Jessica undertook a study to determine whether triclosan could impact our microbiome, and they reported their findings late last year in the journal Embo Molecular Medicine. So when I came to Stanford, I had the great opportunity to meet Julie Parsonet. Uh, Julie Parsonet is probably best known for her groundbreaking work in showing the relationship between Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacteria that lives in the stomach, and gastric cancer. She's an infectious disease doctor and an epidemiologist, and she had become really interested in studying the impact of antibiotics on childhood growth and development. To do so, she had done a very interesting cohort study where she recruited a bunch of pregnant mothers and randomized those pregnant mothers to either use triclosan-containing household products or household products that didn't contain triclosan. And what kind of products are we talking about? Um, so we're talking about dishwashing liquids, bar soaps, and the bar soaps actually contain triclocarban, and toothpaste. Um, so toothpaste. People, may not, yeah, people may not know that some of the toothpastes, or actually one of the toothpastes that's currently available on the market, actually contains triclosan. Could you say what the name is uh, of that toothpaste brand? Uh, I guess I could, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's a toothpaste out there that contains that. Okay. Um, so essentially what she did was she randomized these mothers to either receive antibiotic-containing compounds or not. And then the mothers gave birth, raised their children as usual. And what she did was over the course of the subsequent three years, she collected all kinds of different samples from these moms and their babies, as well as a bunch of clinical data. So she collected stool, urine, skin swabs, air swabs, and she also ended up collecting lots of clinical information about the individuals themselves, like if they'd been exposed to antibiotics or not. What she then did was store these samples for a long period of time and, and started along the process of trying to understand if this early life exposure had somehow impacted the babies and their development. Ami and Jessica extracted microbial DNA from these stool samples and performed metagenomic sequencing 
to identify the microbes present in each sample. And where we really came into the scene was we had a huge interest, obviously, in her stool specimen collection. In fact, we're interested in most people's stool specimen collections. And so what we did was we looked at the stool specimens that Julie and her team had collected over the first year of the baby's life and the related time points from the mother's. And what we were interested in testing was the hypothesis that the exposure to these antimicrobial agents might actually shift the intestinal microbiome of these mothers and perhaps babies. Am I right in assuming that the first few years are probably critical for an infant in developing a proper microbiome? Is that when all the business stuff happens? Absolutely. Uh, So several manuscripts have demonstrated that the infant microbiome develops over the course of the first approximately three years of life. Um, Interestingly, this is also the period of time during which uh, the adaptive immune system actually develops. Jessica was the first author of the Embo-Molecular Medicine paper, and she performed most of the data analysis for the project. She discussed how triclosan impacted the human gut microbiome. What we found is actually triclosan does not alter the microbiome very heavily, which is pretty great considering that it's pretty ubiquitous. So even if you are not using these products, it's actually found in a lot of surface water. Um, But we did find that in mothers, after you added triclosan-containing toothpaste, they saw this enrichment of several species that are known to harbor um, antibiotic resistance. So that's very interesting given that it seemed to correlate with the addition of the toothpaste. So it's only when the compound's present in toothpaste that you see an impact on the microbiome? Yes. Now, most of us were raised with the idea that all bacteria are bad and that eradicating them is good. That perspective led to widespread use of antibacterial chemicals in numerous products in order to kill as many bacteria as possible and to improve our lives. But genomics has since revolutionized our understanding of the microbial complexity of the human microbiome and has contributed to our current view of bacteria. It turns out they're not all bad, and some of them might even help you maintain your good health. Um, So when you think about it, the vast majority of microbes that had been studied in the decades prior to the last couple of decades were collected by clinical microbiology labs, and they were usually collected in the setting of somebody being sick. And so we learned a whole lot about these pathogens, in part because our methods to identify and measure these organisms were very biased toward culture-based methods. In came the ability to do methods of high-throughput characterization of a community, like 16S sequencing. Um, And this is a method where you amplify a conserved region of the ribosomal RNA from the small subunit of the ribosome. You then amplify it and sequence it. There are sequence variations in the middle region that is amplified, and you can use that to actually determine the phylogeny of the organisms that are present. In other words, you can measure who's there in terms of microorganisms in a complex mixture. This is the time when people started to first get an idea of the vast complexity of microbes that are, that are present in our gut. Exactly. So, you know, the ability to measure these organisms in a more unbiased way led to a better understanding of who's there. And we realized that there are quite a lot of organisms that are there and that many of these organisms are never described as pathogens. And so it was thought that maybe some of these organisms actually had health benefits. There had been, obviously, decades of literature that even preceded this in germ-free animals showing that germ-free animals had problems. And so putting these things together, we, we started to generate a larger consciousness in the broad biological community that many microbes could actually not only be not harmful, but potentially beneficial. 
Ami described some of the work she and Jessica have been doing to understand the impact of the human gut microbiome on cancer. Their research suggests that the human gut microbiome can actually affect how well cancer drugs work. And she discussed methods for modifying the human gut microbiome. In my own field, um, I'm very interested in the impact of the microbiome on cancer. Um, There have been a series of papers that have now come out suggesting that the composition of the intestinal microbiome, and this is mostly in animal models, impacts the rate of tumor development. It also can impact the efficacy of chemotherapies, not only traditional chemotherapies like cyclophosphamide and platinum drugs, which are, you know, the really cytotoxic agents that we use to treat cancer patients, but also newer immunotherapies. Uh, And so I think that this actually is both scientifically very interesting, but for me as a physician scientist, incredibly compelling because it suggests that I might be able to make our cancer drugs work better by modifying the microbiome. And modifying the microbiome, how would you do that? Um, So there are essentially three major categories of ways that you can modify the microbiome. Um, There is the administration of antibiotics. And antibiotics, of course, will kill off certain organisms. Um, So antibiotics are a good way to change the microbiome, but they tend to actually deplete elements of the microbiome. There are live bacterial therapies, and live bacterial therapies can range from fermented foods, kimchi, live active culture yogurt, to probiotics, so bacteria that are actually packaged and, and sold as live organisms that you eat where you hope they will actually entrench and colonize, all the way to fecal microbiota transplantation. So poop transplants, basically. Poop transplants. So, you know, three different choices, antibiotics, live bacterial therapies that go from simple to complex, and foods that feed our microbes um, that go from simple elemental compounds to really complex. Since Jessica is poised to begin her independent career in microbiome science, I asked her to describe what kinds of questions she's most interested in pursuing. She's excited about the intersection of academia and industry in microbiome research, and in studying how the microbiome impacts human health. Uh, What I think is most interesting in the microbiome field and having worked in it myself is how quickly industry is catching up to academia. So I feel usually in a lot of fields, academia will run with it, and then industry kind of catches up. And here I think there's a lot of room for both either to see how different pre and probiotics are regulated, given that we're starting to know more about the microbiome in general. That's an interest an interest of mine. Right now, most of the microbiome field is associations, and so putting associations to actual mechanisms also is very interesting, and so all of those questions will drive whatever it is I do. Ami believes that future studies will not only expand our knowledge of what microbes are present in the human microbiome, but also define what microbes are doing within the human microbiome. She also believes that we'll begin to understand how microbes and humans communicate with each other. And she's also excited about the possibility of new kinds of drugs that are based on microbes. I think the the things that excite me the most are us returning to an understanding that microorganisms are alive and changing. I think many of the methods that we use to enumerate microorganisms have um, led us to focus on their taxonomy, which is like what genus and what species is present, um, and just kind of counting how many of them there are and which different kinds there are. Um, but I think fundamentally, we're all more interested in what they do and how they change with exposures to our common environmental toxins, foods, etc. And so I think one thing that we'll see is um, methods that allow us to understand how these organisms change over time, how they adapt, 
um, and how they respond to triggers, toxins, and exposures in our environment. And so I think we'll learn a lot about molecules, secreted proteins, etc., that actually are the ways that microbes communicate with us. I think finally, we'll learn a lot about how our bodies and our genomes respond to these communication signals. So I think there's a lot of space. I do hope that we'll see the advent of some microbially derived therapeutics, whether they are specific microbes, mixtures of microbes, genetically engineered microbes, or just compounds that microbes make that have advantageous outcomes for us. But I think those are some of the things we'll see. So the human gut microbiome is composed of a complex variety of microbes, including many that can't be cultured in the lab. Culture-independent genomics techniques have been critical to our understanding of the human microbiome and have influenced scientists' view of the value of bacteria. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Michael Wilson, professor of neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. We'll be discussing metagenomic sequencing techniques to help understand the causes of brain inflammation here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.